Hello, church. Uh, my name is Young, and um, we will be now reading today's passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 13. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the reading of God's word. All right, well, so if you've been with us uh, for this month, you'll know that this month is our guest speaker month, so we're really excited to have every week uh, in this month uh, just a new speaker, um, hopefully to give you a refreshing word. So I'm really excited to announce our guest speaker for this Sunday. Um, with us today is Pastor Joshua Lee. He's a pastor on staff at Berean Mission Church in Millbrae. Uh, Josh is originally from Sacramento. Are, are you a Kings fan? Tough. Uh, but uh, Josh is also a graduate from the University of California, Irvine. Um, he moved back to Northern California to help plant Berean Mission Church. Um, he also received his MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Josh and his wife, Vanessa, have three children, and they live in the East Bay, and I believe the whole family is here, too. Um, so Berean is a close church to us. We know their staff really well, so we're really excited to have Josh share the word with us. So if you give him a hand as he comes up. All right, well, thank you, Pastor Eugene, for that uh, very kind and gracious intro. Uh, greetings to you all from the brothers and sisters over at Berean uh, Mission Church uh, up in Millbrae. Uh, we've had the privilege of hearing from both Pastor Jay and Pastor Eugene in the past, and so it's a blessing to be able to return the favor and bring God's word to you today. Uh, you know, I, I hope you guys find it as encouraging as I do that there are other believers here in the Bay that are familiar with that, you know, mobile church life. Uh, just like you, BMC, we meet at a school very similar to this one. Everybody is there right now. We know the unique challenges of doing that, of having to, you know, set up and tear down every day getting kicked out when there are school events going on. Uh, I was just telling somebody, we, we use the exact same like cart and printer for our children's ministry that, that you guys do. So it's, it's good to know that there's another church in the trenches uh, alongside us. Uh, and actually, just like you guys, we also finished a sermon series recently, as you may have guessed, through uh, the book of Ephesians. And so uh, I'd love to share just a little bit of what we learned in our study with you all this morning. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you to imagine an invisible world. What if I told you that there is an entire host of little organisms invisible to the human eye that make up our world? That this very moment, millions upon millions of these single-celled organisms called bacteria are living all over our bodies and even in our bodies. And these tiny invisible organisms are responsible for a vast amount of human functioning. They help our bodies digest food, absorb nutrients, and stay healthy. But they're also responsible for a vast amount of bad. They cause infections, disease, and even death. Basically, there's an entire segment of reality that you and I cannot see, but which shapes how we exist in this world. 
as intelligent 21st century people, uh, which we all are, your response to all of this is, well, of course, right? I mean, we learn about cells and bacteria starting in, well, like elementary school. And it's just common knowledge for, for all of us. But if you were to take these basic facts about science, which we take for granted, and present them to, say, a person living in ancient times, if you told them about this entire world of microscopic organisms, they'd probably tell you, you are out of your mind. There is no visible evidence for this reality that you're describing. But let's flip things around. Let's imagine the opposite. That one of these ancient peoples tries to describe their reality to you. And they say, what if I told you that there is an entire host of spiritual beings, invisible to the human eye, that reside in our world? That at this very moment, there are legions of beings that the Bible calls demons or rulers and principalities, all of whom are led by the ultimate evil being himself, the devil. And that these forces are responsible for a vast amount of bad in our world. They cause sickness, conflict, disease, and even death. Basically, there is an entire spiritual segment of reality that you cannot see or perceive, but which shapes how we exist in this world. What would be our response? We'd probably say the same thing, right? You are out of your mind. You see, the point that I'm trying to make is that humans have always had a limited perspective of reality. And over history, we've essentially just traded one unseen reality for another. What an ancient person might have attributed to demonic possession, we now attribute to a mental health struggle. Whereas an ancient person might have turned to magic charms or idol worship to deal with their problems, we now consult our healthcare providers. Ancient people prioritize the immaterial side of reality, whereas now, at least in the Western world, we prioritize the material. And yet, the Bible never allows us to fully separate these two sides of reality from one another. The Bible does an amazing job of keeping both dimensions of human existence in proper balance. As we just heard earlier from Ephesians 6.12, the Bible acknowledges in the span of the same verse both the physical, flesh and blood, as well as the spiritual, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. The Bible never shies away from the supernatural, and yet it is firmly rooted in the natural world. Now, for you and I, the average Christian, we would probably confess that we have maybe a hard time maintaining that biblical balance when it comes to how we see our world. We're a little bit uncomfortable talking about things like demonic activity and the supernatural. Our attitude towards passages like the one we're looking at today is to gloss over all the weird spiritual stuff and focus on the more practical things like putting on the armor of God. But here's the thing. If you want to understand and apply the Bible properly, and I'm guessing you do because you're here, you have to take it on its own terms. And to do so, it means you have to process the Bible through a supernatural worldview because that was the worldview of the men who wrote it. And so my hope today is to bring us into this unseen reality, the spiritual world of the Bible, and to help you understand the Bible as the original writers and readers would have understood it. 
We're going to look at the cosmic tug of war that has shaped the course of human existence from the beginning of time, something that you and I commonly refer to as spiritual warfare. Now, that phrase is not found in the Bible, but it is one that believers over the years have used to describe the experience of the Christian life, probably because the language of war is the only thing adequate to communicate what's going on. God's people have been caught in the middle of this massive heavenly rebellion, and whose side you choose to stand on has everything to do with the Christian life. Now, I'm going to approach our passage in three parts today. First, I'm going to start from really high up. We're going to start from 30,000 feet, and we're going to look at the landscape of spiritual warfare. We're going to see how this war has played out from the very beginning of the Bible. And then after, we're going to look at our victory in spiritual warfare. And the Bible portrays this great spiritual war as one that has already been won. So we want to look at how Jesus offers us hope and victory in the war. And finally, we're going to look at the Christian and spiritual warfare. Towards the end, we'll uh, go over a few ways that our specific passage guides our approach to fighting spiritual battles in everyday life. And so to begin, the landscape of spiritual warfare. To understand spiritual warfare, you and I have to first understand the spiritual realm itself. And to do so, we have to go all the way back to our Sunday school days. And we have to start with creation itself. We all know that in Genesis 1, out of nothing, God creates the heavens and the earth. You have high and you have low. You have heaven where God lives and earth where we live. And each of these spaces are then filled with inhabitants. The earth is filled with plants and animals, and and the heavens are filled with the stars. And each space is also then given a ruler to rule over those beings. On earth, it was told to rule over every living thing. It's mankind, right? Genesis 1.28. And in heaven, God sets the sun and the moon to rule over the day and over the night. Genesis 1, 18. Now we read this and we think, big deal, right? The, the stars, uh, we know that they're just big flaming balls of gas. But realize that for the biblical authors, these heavenly bodies gave them categories for talking about the spiritual realm. The authors of the Bible, like most ancient people, thought of the stars as divine beings, heavenly rulers that were created and delegated with authority from God. And these divine beings, often referred to in the Bible as angels, their primary job, similar to man, was to serve and honor God. For example, take a look at Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And so here's how the Bible understands our universe. You have heaven and you have earth. You have the spiritual and the physical realms, separate but existing together. On earth, you have God's earthly staff team, us humans. And in the heavens, you have God's heavenly staff team, the spiritual beings, both existing to rule and to serve and to glorify their creator, all so that God would be magnified as in all and through all and over all. 
At least that's how things should have been. Because this peaceful, ordered version of reality would not last very long. One of the members of God's heavenly staff team, he chooses to do what? He chooses to rebel. This angel, described in the Bible as the morning star, doesn't want to serve God. He wants to be God. And this enemy, not content to defy God on his own, comes down to earth to drag humans along into his rebellion. This being, whom we know as Satan, tells Adam and Eve the lie that they too can be like God on their own terms. They can have divine knowledge and divine power without having to submit to divine authority. And so Adam and Eve, they eagerly follow along, and they plunge the world into sin, chaos, and ultimately death. And you see, the biblical authors, they they saw this combined heavenly and earthly rebellion against God in Eden as the first of many to come. Eventually, more angels would rebel. The Bible refers to these fallen angels as demons. And these demonic powers would wreak havoc throughout history, seeking to corrupt, lead astray, and rule over mankind. And so when the biblical authors looked out at all the evil in the world, they understood it happening on two dimensions. Uh, On one hand, you have these corrupt human rebels, kings and rulers who commit injustice and violence, but who themselves were being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, divine beings who also were in rebellion against God. Now, we see this most clearly in the story of the Exodus, where those awful deeds of genocide and enslavement were attributed to both Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Both are complicit, therefore, upon both, the Bible says in Exodus 12, that God would execute his judgments. So the Bible sees the world as one completely given over to rebellion. On one hand, this is driven by fallen divine beings, the devil and his demonic forces, whose ultimate end goal is to see God's creation plunged into disorder, and who will do whatever they can to get us on their side. And on the other hand, we humans are still at fault. Not only do we not resist evil, we gladly play along. And all of this, and I know it's been a lot, all of this has just been the backstory for what Paul says in our passage. I want you to look at verse 12. There Paul writes this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you're familiar with your Bible, you've probably encountered those terms before, rulers and authorities and powers. And if you're like me, you've probably just glossed over them. But now you know what Paul is referring to here in this passage is none other than that cosmic battle that has been playing out since the pages of Genesis. These rulers and authorities here in Ephesians are the very same forces of evil who for generations have been trying to ruin God's order. And this is something that all the New Testament authors understood. Consider 1 John 5. The the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we're told that this great spiritual battle has arrived at our doorsteps, which is why you and I need armor, which we'll get to later. But first, where does all of this leave us? 
Now, in light of all this, you and I are really left with two options. We can either stick our heads in the sand and pretend that none of this is real, or at least that none of it matters. But the Bible, you see, denies us this option. If we take God's word at face value, we have to affirm that the devil exists, that demonic forces are at work, and that there is real evil in this world. Indeed, the reality of spiritual warfare gives us categories for making sense of the evil we constantly see. What else could cause a parent to kill their own child, or a teenager to to shoot up a school, or, or one ethnic group to try to wipe out another? Without this category of a powerful, malevolent force operating in our world, we're really left with no good explanations for the awful things we see every day. But again, the Bible's worldview helps us to understand why evil exists and also what that evil is trying to accomplish. Listen to what Jesus says about our enemy in John chapter 8. He says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so what is, what is Satan trying to do? Satan is attempting to murder, to uncreate God's creation. He cannot be God, therefore the next best thing is to destroy what belongs to God. And the way that he does this is through deception, right? Lies have been Satan's greatest tool ever since Eden. And perhaps Satan's greatest deception is tricking us into thinking that we have bigger problems than him. Which is why Paul reminds us in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, recently someone made a comment to me at church that I was really tempted to take the wrong way, uh, to internalize as a personal attack against me. Uh, But I remembered what Paul says here in verse 12, and I realized, wait a second, I have it all wrong. My issue is not with this person, and their issue probably isn't with me. We have a common enemy, one who is working to steal, kill, and destroy. Friends, understand that the reality of spiritual warfare means that our true enemy is never another human being. And this principle has broader application than just our personal relationships. As believers, our enemy is not the public school system. It's not our government. It's not the culture. For we do not wrestle against flesh or blood. And when you do that, when you enter into conflict against flesh and blood, you have already lost. So do not lose sight of who our true adversary is. Now, perhaps the most important thing that we need to know about spiritual warfare is that it is actually a battle in which the outcome has already been decided. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the victory in spiritual warfare. You know, back in elementary school, uh, the first ever Harry Potter book that I read was The Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, For those of you who know, that is the third book in the series. Now, don't get me wrong, Prisoner of Azkaban is a great book, uh, but the problem is that it it doesn't make a lot of sense when you haven't read the two books that come before it. I remember seeing this, you know, book, I think it was at at Costco, uh, and there is this, you know, cool gold lettering on it and this, like, awesome flying creature on the cover, and I was like, oh, I have to to read that, because I knew all my classmates were reading Harry Potter, so naturally, I, I wanted to do the same. 
But man, I was so lost trying to make sense of things. I had no idea who these characters were and what their motivations were. I remember wanting to enjoy the book, but also being too confused to do so because I didn't have the whole story. And that's kind of what happens when we don't have the whole story when it comes to spiritual warfare. You see, everything we've covered so far, the fall of Satan, the rebellion of angels, all of that is only part of the story. And in fact, it's not even a big part of it. When the Bible pulls the curtain back on the spiritual realm and gives us insight into the forces that are at work in our world, it does so quite infrequently. And when it does do so, the purpose is never to scare us, but rather to encourage us. Because our great problems of evil, darkness, and spiritual oppression have all been resolved in Christ. And I want to take you through the Bible to show you how. You see, when Jesus steps into our broken and fractured world, what is his very first message? What's the very first thing that he preaches? Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus is ushering in a place where heaven and earth come together and exist under God's good rule where the inhabitants of this kingdom, rather than being united against God in rebellion, are united under him in submission. Does this all sound familiar? This is the, the vision of Genesis 1, right? What Eden should have been. Now, just like in the first Eden, it's not long before the devil arrives on the scene. Here's another human, Satan thinks, like all the ones who came before him that I'm going to deceive just like Adam, just like Jacob, just like David, I'm going to conquer this one with the promises of fame and pleasure and power. But Jesus is not like anyone who came before him. And he rejects the lies of the devil by trusting in the word of God. And it soon becomes clear that this Jesus has power over all the evil spiritual beings too, the same ones that have been oppressing humanity. Jesus' ministry consists of three main things, preaching the good news, healing sickness, and casting out demons. And again, for you and I, we see all those things as separate and disconnected, but for people in Jesus' time, sickness, mental illness, disease, and sin all had a common spiritual origin. And Jesus had come to heal all of it, to show everyone that the kingdom of heaven is here that God's restoration project of the universe was starting. Or as the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 3, Jesus had come to destroy the works of the devil. But get this. The ultimate way that Jesus planned to destroy the works of the devil was by allowing the devil to destroy him. You see, when Jesus hands himself over to the religious authorities in Gethsemane, he, he says something really interesting. He says this in Luke twenty two fifty three: 53. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus understands that he is handing himself over both to the earthly authorities and to the spiritual powers of darkness at work behind them. 
Later, Paul would accuse a familiar group of crucifying Jesus, the rulers of this age. And at Calvary, every single demon, every single angel that had rebelled against God was there, unleashing their torment against the Son of God. Make no mistake, Jesus suffered on the cross physically, but the kind of torture he went through spiritually is unfathomable. And there on the cross, Jesus was murdered by the earthly and heavenly forces of evil. But understand this. The New Testament saw the cross as the place where Jesus triumphed over evil. Not not the tomb at Easter, but there in the darkness of Good Friday, Jesus wins. You see, on the cross, what Satan didn't know, what the religious rulers didn't know, is that as they were crucifying the Son of God, they were also crucifying our sin. Our record of debt, all of our shame, everything that we owed to God was canceled and nailed to that cross. Anything that God could possibly hold against you or I, gone in an instant. Your worst sin, your most shameful failure. All of that died along with Jesus. In the Bible, one of, God, or one of Satan's titles is the accuser. And at the cross, God strips that title from him. There is nothing left for him to accuse God's people of. Which is why Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The cross is Jesus' decisive victory over all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and ultimately death itself. I want to show you the final bookend to all this. I mentioned earlier that Jesus' first message is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now compare this to Jesus' last message to his disciples after he is resurrected and ascends in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember how in Genesis, God gave his authority to his earthly beings and to his heavenly beings to rule over his good universe, and we all utterly failed. Well, that authority has now been given to Jesus. And through his son, heaven and earth have been returned to God's rightful rule. So what does this mean? Well, first and most obviously, it means that the risen Jesus has authority over all spiritual beings, including the evil ones that dominate our world. Ephesians 1 says that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus has authority over every single evil spirit, which is why the Bible never tells us to fear the devil or to fret over demonic activity, because Jesus has them under control. Yes, there is a lot of evil in our world, but imagine how much worse things would be if Jesus was not in power. So Jesus has authority over all spiritual beings. But second, and more importantly, understand that the risen Jesus also has authority over you and me. You see, the Bible never points to specific events or situations and says, uh, this thing is spiritual warfare. 
Rather, it gives us eyes to see and understand that basically all of life is spiritual warfare. Author David Pallison, he says this, spiritual warfare is a battle for lordship. At its core, it's the battle for who you will serve. In whose image are you being made? Will you resemble the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? Or will you grow more and more like Satan, the liar and destroyer? Friends, spiritual warfare isn't just about exorcisms and and witchcraft. It's about the everyday battle for your heart. On one side are the forces of evil seeking to drag us back in the mud. They know they can't condemn us anymore because of the cross. So instead, they try to discourage, tempt, and mislead. But on the other side is our Savior who loved us enough to die for us and who now wants us to live under the safety of his authority. And you see these twin realities, right? That Jesus is both sovereign over the forces of evil and sovereign over us inform how we as believers are to approach spiritual warfare in our day-to-day. And that leads us to our third and last point this morning, the Christian and spiritual warfare. As I said, we've been kind of cruising at 30,000 feet. Uh, Now we're going to land this plane, all right? We're going to look at what our passage specifically has to say about spiritual warfare and how everything we've talked about ties into it. So far, we've established that spiritual warfare is this umbrella term, right? One that describes the battle for authority between God and all rebel forces. As we've seen, this battle has already been decisively won at the cross, but at the same time, it's still very much ongoing. The defeated enemy tries to attack and destroy God's world and God's people. That's why, as believers, we face temptation and trials, why we go through seasons of spiritual discouragement. It's probably why you and I feel so tired all the time, because we're in the middle of a war. The Bible invites believers to see all of life from the perspective of spiritual warfare. Sometimes the battles are small and mundane. The tiny frustrations that mount from living life in a broken world. Things like your car battery dying, a stressful work project, a difficult family situation. And other times, the battles are enormous. So big that one can only think there has to be some greater evil at work. Things like cancer, betrayal, unemployment, depression. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Satan causes all of those things. In fact, remember that with Job, Satan had to ask God permission just to touch one of his hairs. But rather, it's that the enemy uses these things to incite us to sin and idolatry. I want you guys to to just pause and think for a second. When you look out at the landscape of spiritual warfare in your own life, the sickness and the suffering, how do you typically respond? How do you respond? Is your go-to response perhaps anger? Are you frustrated that the world is as broken and messy as it is? Are you maybe angry at specific people who bring those battles to your doorsteps? Or perhaps is your go-to response fear? You look at everything you're up against and you think, man, I am doomed. There is no way I can survive one day of this, let alone a lifetime. 
Or maybe your response, like many people, is escapism. Life is hard. Spiritual battles are draining. So you're just going to do whatever makes you feel good. So you seek refuge in food or entertainment or sex or vacation. You see, anger, fear, and escapism are common ways that we try to deal with the reality of spiritual warfare. But Ephesians offers us a better approach. In verse 10 of our passage, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the Greek, that verb, be strong, is a command. Uh, But it's also in the passive voice, meaning that this strength has to come from outside of us. Uh, This is an attitude of the heart. It means humbly acknowledging your weakness in the face of the enemy. And it's also a a commitment of the heart. It means choosing to find your refuge and safety in God alone. In the face of our enemies, we are to depend on God. Now, practically speaking, what might this look like the next time we find ourselves in a spiritual battle? For one, it could mean turning more quickly to prayer. If, If you think about it, so many of the prayers that we read in the Bible are written in the context of warfare. And they tell us exactly how we can pray in the midst of the battle. For example, Psalm 18, God, be my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 7, God, in you do I take refuge. Psalm 35, God, fight for me against my enemies. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Prayer is the believer's deepest expression of dependence on God, and it's available to us 24-7. So pray and feel free to use the battle prayers of the Bible. Now, this could also mean turning more quickly to the Holy Spirit. How amazing is it that God, knowing that we would be caught in this cosmic battle with spiritual forces, would leave his spirit to live in our hearts, where he now offers the believer peace and hope and joy and power we need for all of our battles. I think about what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what do you need for your battle? Is it wisdom? Is it hope? Is it protection? Is it endurance? Whatever it is, you have it readily accessible through God's Spirit living in your heart. Now, continuing on in verse 11, Paul gives us a familiar analogy for the strength that's available to the believer in the midst of the battle. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our passage today is basically one long introduction to the famous armor of God passage in Ephesians. And I want to make sure that you don't miss something important here. Because twice in in our passage, this introduction of sorts, Paul specifies that we are to put on the whole armor of God. Paul, he wants us to see this armor as an entire outfit. In so much of the popular teaching on the armor of God, uh, this point is is sometimes lost. You see, in ancient times, when a king gave a soldier his armor, he was also giving him a purpose. He was also giving him a job. He was giving him an identity. And when you become a believer, that's exactly what happens. 
Wearing the armor of God is first and foremost about putting on a new identity. Ultimately, it's about, it's about putting on Jesus and living like Jesus and fighting like Jesus. Our biggest question when we're faced with trials shouldn't be, how do I get out of this battle? But instead, how can I be more like Jesus in this battle? For the Christian, we don't get a choice whether or not to fight against evil. That choice was made when we followed Jesus. But we must choose how we fight. And we must remember why we fight, which is out of our identity as soldiers in God's army. So we see that the proper attitude in spiritual warfare is dependence, and that the proper resources come from resting in our identity in Christ. Now finally, what is the goal? What is considered mission accomplished for the Christian when it comes to spiritual warfare? Now let's come back to those two things that we know are true, right? Jesus has authority over us, which means that the way we fight our battles is by aligning ourselves with him and putting him on as our armor. But what is the other thing we know that is true? That Jesus also has authority over every spiritual power, including Satan himself, which means that you and I are fighting a battle that we've already won. Paul tells us in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What is the standard of success when it comes to spiritual warfare? Notice in that verse that we're not called to win because Jesus has done that already. Instead, we are called to stand firm, to hold our ground. Success in spiritual warfare isn't measured by how many temptations you overcome or how many trials you survive. Friends, we should stop counting our victories. And perhaps more importantly, we should stop counting our failures. Because the good news is that Christians are not called to be victorious. Christians are told that we are victorious in Jesus. And the knowledge of that victory is what enables us to be faithful in our trials. That's what empowers us to stand firm under temptation, to fight against discouragement. So let's reframe how we understand victory in the Christian walk. It's not about winning, and it's not about losing. It's actually about fighting. If you fight, if you struggle, if you push back against evil, you've already won. I want to end with this. You know, recently I was chatting with someone who uh, became a believer somewhat recently as an adult. And I was asking him what life was like now compared to before. And as we were both talking and reflecting, we came to the conclusion that when you become a Christian, life doesn't get easier, but it does get better. Life doesn't get easier, but it does get better. See, your problems don't go away when you follow Christ. If anything, when you become a believer, you paint this giant target on your back. Because as a Christian, you are far more of a threat to the plans of the devil than someone who doesn't know God. So life doesn't get easier, but it does get far better. It's better because in Christ, we have new identity and purpose. It's better because the alternative, as we saw, is enslavement to evil. And it's better because in Christ, we have victory and a sure destiny. And one day, all of our wrestling, 
all of our fighting will come to an end. That's the final piece of good news I want to leave you with about spiritual warfare. Not only does it have a good outcome, not only does it come with God's provision, spiritual warfare is also temporary. And so with that view, let us fight, let us persevere, knowing that all of these things are light and momentary afflictions, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so burdened often by the cares of this world. And God, as, as we've seen in your word, there is more that's going on. There is more that is affecting our hearts. There are forces of evil trying to drag us down. But God, we take comfort in knowing that you have given us every resource we need to fight the greatest being Christ himself. We thank you, Lord, for the victory that we have in him. And, and we pray that as we continue to, to walk in this world and, and to pursue uh, obedience and holiness, Lord, that we would remember and rest in his victory. And that we would not rest in our victory or, or be discouraged by our failures, Lord, but that we would look to Christ and all that he has done for us. We thank you and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.